We are uh, in the middle, if you're visiting, we are in the middle of a series on the book of Nehemiah. Old Testament book of Nehemiah, it, uh, it sits kind of partway through your Old Testament, but actually uh, chronologically it's happening right at the end of the Old Testament era. So we've, uh, we've explored Nehemiah and him being called by, uh, him asking his brother, how are things going in Jerusalem? And him going back to Jerusalem and uh, rebuilding the walls. And we've looked at a couple of weeks, uh, a couple of, well, it wasn't a couple of weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago, we looked at opposition, didn't we? The opposition that Nehemiah faces. And then last time we were together, we looked at the internal opposition in chapter five, how actually the unique consequence of internal opposition as the people of God start to fight amongst themselves over things, the unique consequence of that is that the building work stops. The building work stops. I said that as the people of God, when we start to have division amongst us, then that, what that does is it stops the building of the kingdom of God like nothing else. So we are now in Nehemiah, the end of chapter 6, the beginning of chapter 7. And we're going to take it thematically, okay? So we're not going to cover verse by verse everything. But we're going to have this week and then we've got two more weeks. And then actually Gary Gibbs, who's doing that Saturday evening thing, is going to be with us on a Sunday. And then we've got, I think we're then in Advent. Can you believe we are then in Advent? That season of waiting and uh, don't go quiet on me. You're looking like I'm a little bit weird. Advent comes just before Christmas. It happens every year. It, means it reminds us that we need to get our shopping done. And then we've got Christmas services and we're doing things with Love Stratford. But at the moment, if you've got a Bible, just encourage you just to, just to go to the end of chapter 6 of Nehemiah. If you haven't got a Bible, then there are two left on the connect point over there. There's some bits of paper that you can take notes with as well. Otherwise, it will come up on the screen behind me. There it is right there. And so we're at the end of chapter 6. And the end of chapter 6 is this monumental moment. Let me just read it. Verse 15 and 16. It says, So the wall was finished. That's what I was expecting. The wall was finished. This book is a book about the, the rebuilding of the wall. And here we are at the end of chapter 6. The wall was finished. And listen to this. The 25th day of the month of, of Elul in 52 days. The wall was rebuilt in 52 days. And when all of our enemies heard of it, the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. What a moment! The wall has been rebuilt. Two, two and a half mile long wall with an average height of 12 meters. It's a big wall. Average height of 12 meters, an average thickness of 2.5 meters. The wall contained 34 watchtowers and seven main gates for traffic, for people going in and out of the city. And it's done and it's dusted in 52 days. 52 days, that's a little less than two months. Anybody ever had building work done in your house? The first three weeks is spent with them going, oh, I don't know, cup of tea. I'm not so sure about that. We're going to have to think about that for another three weeks. I'm not knocking any, any builders, any builders in church, I apologize. But amazing, these builders got it done in a whole wall in 52 days. A whole wall. So fast was the project completed that the Bible tells us that all of the people that surrounded the people of God fell in their own, they, they were humbled, weren't they? Fell in their own esteem because of the speed at which this project was done said surely this had to be the work of God. 70 years these people have been waiting. This wasn't waiting for 52 days. 
the people of God had been in exile for 70 years as the Babylonians came in and swept through. And do you remember I talked to you about Ezra and Nehemiah being one book in the Hebrew scripture? It's actually Ezra 1 and 2. And it catalogues um, the, the returning from exile as they start to rebuild. In Ezra, it's more about the rebuilding of the temple. In Nehemiah, it's about the rebuild, rebuilding of the wall. But there is so much expectation. There's so much hope. This isn't just saying 52 days we started a project and wow, it was finished. This is 70 years of waiting for their city to be rebuilt. But the observant among you should notice something. The really clever ones amongst you will notice, as I say, that the book of Nehemiah is about the rebuilding of a wall. We're at the end of chapter six. Flick over a few pages in your Bible. We're not at the end of Nehemiah. There's still another, what, seven chapters? I can't do math real well. Seven chapters, I think, to go in Nehemiah. There's 13 here in chapter six, and the wall is done. The wall is completed. Remember the big idea of this series was me asking you, church, what are we building? What would it look like if the people of God in the 21st century were known not just for what they were destroying and knocking down, but for what they are building? As we seek to be about building something for God, as we seek to be about building something for God in our families, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our colleges, church, know that the practicalities of that are only part of it. The practicalities of building for God are only part of it. We're here at the end of chapter six. There are still another seven chapters to go. God doesn't suddenly stop building. He's building something, and they've been practically focusing on the building of the wall. So what is the rest of Nehemiah about? Well, if you need a title for today's sermon, it's called Phase Two of the Building. Phase two, and that's not phase two because it comes afterwards. So often it runs parallel. But when we're building for God, we're not just building practically. It's not just a cup of cold water to the least of these. We are building something else for God. Last year, I put up a shed. But I feel like I needed a shed to be a real man. I needed a shed in my garden. So I needed to buy some tools. And I needed to put that in my shed. So I started building the shed. And when you start building the shed, uh, I leveled the ground. So I decided where we were going to have it. Perfect spot for a shed right there. Going to level the ground. So I leveled the ground. And then I got told you need to put sand down. So I'm, okay, well, that's what you have to do. I don't know why you put sand down, but I'm putting sand down. So for those that know how to build, you know what you're doing. I put sand down, made sure that was level. And then you get the slabs. I got the slabs, and it's like a mathematical conundrum trying to figure out how to lay these slabs in such a way that the shed would fit on top of... I think there's some people that might want to come in. Ian, can you just let those guys in through the door? Because I think it's probably shut. That'd be great. Um, and so um, you, you're rearranging these slabs to then put the shed on. And I got the shed going, and I put the shed up, and guess what? The shed was up. Got the shed up, no problem at all. And I stood back, and I just thought, Wow, look at my handiwork. Aren't I good at constructing stuff? Got the shed up there, happy days, get all the, get all the tools in there, call Cara and Bella out, come and have a look at what I've built. Got a shed up, feel like a real man now. And I basked in the glory of what I'd built. Because when we build, we think about the practicals, don't we? We get all the tools, we get the bricks and the mortar, and we build. And that's it, job done. But when God's building something, there's a phase two to the building that we need to understand. It's not just about the practicalities. God wants to build something spiritually as well as something practically. So this morning we're going to look and learn from Nehemiah about what it means to spiritually rebuild, not just practically 
rebuild. Chapter 7 of Nehemiah. Chapter 7 is this chapter that probably most people gloss over. It's one of those chapters, you know when you're reading the Bible and it's just a list of names. And you think, oh, no idea what this is. I can't even pronounce half of them. So to save time, we're not going to, I encourage you to go and read them for yourself. For those of you that are astute in the room will know I'm doing that purely because there's some really difficult names to pronounce in there. And I didn't want to embarrass myself trying to pronounce all these names. And, but there is a list of names in Nehemiah 7. And after each one is a number. And what they're doing is they are cataloging all the people of God in Jerusalem. Because they'd finished the war thinking, well, that's it, job done, building practical stuff for God has been done. So now we're going to go back to our own towns. But Nehemiah says, well, actually, if we're going to transform this city, we need the people of God in this city. So let's call them back from their towns and let's catalogue them by their genealogy. So he starts, he starts naming them, the son of this and the son of that. and He starts putting numbers next to each one of them. This is how many were in that family. And this is how many people belong to that tribe. So he was, what he was doing was he was marking the people out to say these people are different. What he wasn't doing was just upping the word count of the Bible. He wasn't giving you a really boring chapter to read one day when you're doing your devotions. The Spirit of God inspired the author of this book to put these names in and to put the numbers and for it to go down into the book of the law because he wanted to teach us something. By naming the tribes and the numbers of the men in those tribes, their identity is being marked out. They're being marked out as different. They are being set apart to stand out, called to be different. Church, people should know that we are different. If we're going to spiritually rebuild, part of that rebuilding process is number one, if you're taking notes, number one, that we need to be a people of distinction. And I don't mean distinction in as much as we need to prove that we're better than everybody else. I mean we need to show that we are different. We stand out. We are not the same. As we were putting up the, the, the chairs this morning, there's a lady that so often opens up for us. And um, as I was getting the chairs, I can't remember the conversation, but literally as I'm getting the chairs, oh, she was talking about somebody that was visiting yesterday and how, um, I won't say names, it's a famous person was here and, um, and they weren't particularly nice to her and they weren't a very nice person. And she said, um, and it's so different when ordinary people come here talking to and she went oh not that you're not ordinary and I was like no it's fine I get exactly what you mean we're not ordinary and she knows there's something different about us because of who we are that we are a people of distinction that when she thinks of other people well, they're the normal people you're different there's something different about you that should be who we are we should be a people of distinction in the new testament 1 peter 2 verse 9 it says but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light if we are declaring the excellencies of god there has to be something distinct about us something of god within us that says we are different we are not the same. If we're really called out of the darkness into his marvellous light, then we need to shine when we go back into those places of darkness, don't we? We should shine brightly. So for true spiritual rebuilding to take place, and you might want to call that for true revival, renewing, whatever you want to call it, for that to take place, church, we need to realise that we are a people of distinction. And that's the first thing that Nehemiah does in the whole of chapter 7. He sets them apart. He says, you are different. You will not be the same as everybody else. And then at the end of chapter 7, 
Uh, obviously, we've put in the chapter markers, but I think in the original text, I think the end of chapter 7 probably flowed quite nicely into chapter 8. So the end of cha chapter 7 says, And when the seven seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. And it says then, the seventh month. Do you know what that is in the Hebrew calendar? Seventh month, September, October time. It's the harvest time. It's this time of year. Maybe a few weeks ago. We know that the Jews celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles two weeks ago, I think it was. It's that time of year. So it's as we're sat here right now, this is what God is saying. So we read the beginning of chapter 8. It says, And all the people were gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law. So here we have the first appearance of Ezra. So these used to be two books, uh, used to be one book. So Ezra here now makes a little cameo appearance. And it says, Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand um, what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday. Let me just remind you that just if you ever want to email into me and complain about the length of a sermon, my reply will be Ezra read the law from early morning until midday. I can go on a lot longer, church, but I won't. Ezra read the law from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Church, for true spiritual rebuilding to take place, not only do we need to be a people of distinction, not only do we need to be seen as set apart, but number two, if you're taking notes, we need to be a people of the book. We need to be a people of the book. Here we see Ezra. First appearance of Ezra, the scribe, the priest, he's a teacher of the law. The word law is the Hebrew word Torah. This is the five, first five books of our Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those first five books. And he's, he stood up and he's reading them. He's reading them to the people. Of God. And it says that all the people were attentive to the word of the Lord. All the people were attentive. Now, I'm not going to sort of scan my eyes across and see who's being attentive to the word of the Lord this morning. If you need a little sleep, put your feet up, have a little sleep. I don't take it personally. But here we see Ezra is reading from the word of the Lord. And all, I'm a visual person, so if you read on in, in verse 5, I think it says, Ezra opened the book of the, uh, in the sight of all the people, for he was above the people, and he opened it um, he opened it all and the people stood. So he's on, the, if you read about verse 4, I think it is, he, he, he's on this plinth. He's on this kind of wooden platform that's been built for the reading of the law to the people. And he opens the word of the Lord and he's reading. And all the people are attentive to what he's saying and they're listening and they, they stand. Church, can I ask you a question? Can I ask you a question? How attentive are you to the word of the Lord? How attentive is the book in your life? How highly do you hold this book says that the platform was above all the people. Ezra's standing above all the people. The word of God is physically above all the people. How highly are we holding this book in our life? Are you letting this book speak to you daily? Because this isn't just a load of words on a page. This is God breathed. It's him speaking to you. I sang in our worship time about do you believe what God believes about you? The only way you're going to find out what God really believes about you is if you get into this book. 
and hear what he says about you? Because if you don't, then culture will tell you what, he, what they think God thinks of you. And society will start to shape who you are rather than the word of God. Sometimes it can be hard. I'm the pastor of the church, okay? Little confession. Sometimes I read this book and I go, what was that all about? I have no idea what that was all about. But still I'm going to read it. I was reading something last week and I'm reading it going, this is a great story. I've read it a million times, but it doesn't mean anything to me. I don't know what it means. So I'm reading it and I have no clue what it's about. But then this week, there's been a moment where my mind went back to that which I read two weeks ago. And I'm like, God, that's why I read that. Because suddenly your word starts impacting the way I live and what I'm hearing and what I'm doing and how I'm living. And suddenly that story that I read about those two people in scripture, suddenly that starts to impact my day. Over time, God's word will get deep into you. And you may not have a passion for reading it. Can I ask you one thing? Ask God for a passion for his word. Ask God, say, God, do you know what? I really can't be bothered to read your word. I've got so many other things going on in my life. I can't be bothered to read your Bible every day. Ask God for a passion for his word because I believe he will put that into your life. There were times when I was growing up and I was, this, this book was my shelf. Now I'm in it every day. I'm, it might be that I'm reading it from a device as I'm laying in bed. No matter how you read it, just get into the word of God. For spiritual rebuilding to take place, we need to be a people of the book. That's why we're placing such a high emphasis. If those are members, regular attenders of our church, we're placing such a high emphasis on DNA groups. These groups that we've got of a handful of people meeting in different spaces and places around our town to gather around the word of God and to share with each other. I don't don't really understand that. I don't really get that bit. What's that bit all about? And we can share that with each other and we can nurture each other in that. We can speak the truth of God into each other's lives and we can act accordingly to his words. Because genuine spiritual rebuilding, genuine spiritual renewal, revival for that to take place, we need to be a people of distinction that are set apart, but that will only come by being people of the book, allowing this book to shape our paradigms and our perspectives rather than culture shaping them. So guys, just as we move on, the third point. And anybody who knows a decent sermon knows there's three points in a sermon. So you can get a little bit excited now because I'm already coming to the third point and we are only at half 11. Isn't that exciting? It's half 11 and I'm on point three of a sermon already. You're going to be home early this week, I tell you. It is a trap. It is a, for those who know me, it is a trap. But don't worry. <laughs> Chapter 8, verse 6. It says, And when Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. You see, number one, we need to be a people of distinction. Number two, we need to be a people of the book. Number three, for spiritual rebuilding to take place, we need to be a people who worship. We need to be a people who worship. Amen, amen, the Bible tells us. Lifting up their hands, bowing their heads to the ground, with their faces to the ground. Can I tell you, that is no English service, is it? Even that reaction tells me that was no English service. If I've, been, I've been in, like Sibon, you know, African worship is, you know, they are hands high. Amen, amen, faces to the, that's quite normal. But for us, I grew up in the Anglican church, so for me, charismatic meant rolling onto the balls of your feet. Steady on, spirits moving this morning. Let's be careful. Whoa. You know, <laughs> you're laughing because you understand. So 
But here we see the spirit of the, 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 the words of God are being read and the people are responding. The people are responding when it comes to expressions in our worship. What we do on the outside is a key reflection of what's going on in the inside. If we are this kind of person in worship, when we're singing, and it's like, I just don't know if I'm going to be bothered today. I don't know if I can, don't know if I can be really bothered today. That expression would tell you a lot about what's going on in my heart, wouldn't it? And that's not a judgment thing. I'm not asking you to judge each other. But as we are, as we are singing our worship, as, if my posture of life was like this, you would read something about my life. Maybe it would be, that guy's a really chilled out, relaxed guy. Maybe it's that guy who really doesn't care very much. But our outward posture expresses something of what we see inside of us. Out of the overflow of our heart, our mouth speaks. We sing, we dance, we worship. Truth is, a biblical model of worship is a physical response in worship. Here we see they're raising their hands, the reading of the law. They're finding out about who God is. They're rejoicing. Their hands are being raised. Their face is to the floor. When was the last time in a worship service you got your face on the floor? What we do for God comes out of what we know of God. Ezra reads the law and the people respond. Our worship is always a response. Worship is always a response. God reveals something, we respond. If you've not been responding in worship for a while, then I pray that God would reveal something more of himself to you. Because out of the revelation of who God is, we then start to respond in our worship. We start to respond. So my prayer My prayer is that as a church, we would never, ever hit a ceiling in our worship. Because if we hit a ceiling in our worship, we hit a ceiling in our revelation of who God is. So let us never, ever plateau in our worship. Do you know the worship in this church is a bit of a barometer? It's a barometer to how well we're building spiritually. In your life, your worship, and I'm not just talking about the song worship when we gather together. I mean the acts of worship in your life, how you lead your life when nobody else is watching. That moment when you choose to say, I'm going to worship God in this moment, even though I want to do that. That is a barometer. The life of your worship is a barometer to how much of the revelation of who God is, is impacting your life. Ezra reads the law and the people respond to that revelation of who God is. And this isn't just about 450 BC in the journal of some bartender to the king. This happens now. This means right this moment. I was reading this week, the, um, you know I'm a pastor when I say that I was actually enjoying reading the journals of John Wesley. And uh, I was reading John Wesley's journal this week. And um, a journal from 1739, and it was the 1st of January, 1739. And he's gathered, you know John Wesley, yeah? You know the guy that him and uh, I think it was George Whitfield, somebody who knows church history better than me. He's kind of, they were the founders of the Methodist church. And this is his account of 1st of January, 1739. It said, Mr. Hall, Mr. Ingham, Whitfield, Hutchinson, and my brother Charles were present. Charles, you know the guy that wrote all the hymns? They were present at our love feast in Fetter Lane. I love that. The love, I don't even know what a love feast is, but I want to be at one of them. It was a love feast in Fetter Lane with about 60 of our brethren. I want to be at one because of what about, is about to happen. And at three in the morning, 
As we were continuing instant in prayer, the power of God came mightily upon us in so much that many cried out for exceeding joy and many fell with their face to the ground. At 3 a.m. in the morning, they are having a revelation of who God is and their response is to cry out in worship. They fall with their face to the ground. It says, as soon as we were recovered a little bit from the awe and the amazement of the presence of his majesty, we broke out with one voice. Their worship was a response to who God is and what he's doing. And they sang, we praise thee, O God, we acknowledge thee to be our Lord and Savior. The very movement that we're a part of was born out of something that happened in Wales in about 1905. And this 15-year-old guy got saved. And that Welsh revival, I was reading about that this week, and it says, this is an account of that Welsh revival. Everything sprang into new life. Former blasphemers were the most eloquent in both prayer and praise. Drunkards forgot their way to the saloons. Can you imagine that? You're absolutely drunk and you go into the pub and you go, I don't don't know where I'm going. I'm going to church. That's where I'm going. So what was happening in Wales in 1905? They were busy worshipping. It was the young people who responded with the greatest cry to the challenge of absolute surrender and consecration to the service of the Lord. With ever-increasing momentum, the movement advanced Listen to this, creating unprecedented excitement among the churches and the secular institutions alike. When God is building, he is building building something practically, absolutely. You, when you have an opportunity to lean over and lend something to your neighbor because they haven't got something that they need and you've got it, absolutely in that moment. You're lending those things. You're being the brother to the person, to your work colleague who's going through a divorce and they need a coffee with somebody and you sacrifice some of your time and you just sit and listen. Absolutely, when we do Love Stratford and we go and litter pick around this town and we go on mission to Rubri and start helping absolutely we're building something practically but God is also building something spiritually he is calling us to build something spiritually and when we're spiritually rebuilding the people of God have a passion in their worship let us be known for a church that has passion in worship even when we don't feel like it it's not about your feelings they're not God we lift Jesus higher than our feelings let's be known as a church passionate See, the people in Nehemiah's day realized that in that moment, as the law was read to them, they had not been living what the book told them. If you read on, they reinstitute a feast, the Feast of Booths, Feast of Tabernacles, it's the same feast, and they reinstitute that because of what Ezra's reading to them. And they start to change how they live their life. I wonder if maybe some of those people had been solely focusing on the project of practically rebuilding got it done now 52 days god's good isn't he let's go home let's put our feet up finish building for god now god says no 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 there's a phase two whenever i'm building yeah i want you to go and give the cup of cold water to the least of these but i'm also building something spiritually that you need to be a part of and you need to be a people of distinction you need to be a people of the book and you need to be a people who worship maybe you're one of the really spiritual types in this room this morning Congratulations, really pleased. Maybe you're nailing every single one of these. Mate, it's not cleanliness is next to godliness, it's your next to godliness. And I'm really pleased. Come and teach me how to do it. But for the rest of us, can I talk honestly for a minute? Is it okay if we're honest in church? You're not sure? It's probably the safest place to be honest, let's be real. To be people of distinction that stand and shine, to be people of the book that don't just read the book but apply it to every part of our life, 
to be a people that are so in love with God that it impacts how we worship and not just our song worship, but how we live our lives. That alongside doing the practical stuff that we do with Love Stratford and you're called to be the neighbor, to love the neighbor and all of that. Do you ever feel overwhelmed? Do you ever feel like it's just a little bit too much? God, I'm not sure I can do this. I'm writing this sermon and I'm writing it. And I'm going, I'm asking the church and as a leader, we're meant to lead by example and therefore I should be at the front saying, come on, look, lead my, I'm, follow my example. And I'm just like, God, I'm not even sure I can do all of this. How on earth are we meant to do this as a church? And I find myself writing, even in my notes, God, this is an impossible task you have set us. I cannot do it. It's in my notes. That was the cry of my heart in that moment as I'm reading that. And I read on in Nehemiah chapter 8. And my response was just like the people in the day of Nehemiah because in that day, Ezra reads the law and the people start to weep and they start to mourn because they realize their life doesn't measure up to everything that God's word calls of them. My life doesn't stack up. What you're calling me to be and what I'm actually doing are not the same thing. It says in Nehemiah verse nine, it says, in chapter eight, verse nine, it says, Nehemiah, who was the governor and Ezra, the priest and the scribe and the Levites who taught the people said to the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. They say, do not weep or mourn. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the Lord. As the words of God were explained to the people, they realized that so much of what they were hearing was not a part of who they were. They were in no way distinct. They had neglected the word of God and their worship had become about building a secure Jerusalem. But you notice the words of Nehemiah. He says, do not weep. Do not mourn. And he goes on to tell them to eat what sounds like the worst meal in human history. Eat some portions of fat and drink some sweet wine. Nice. That's going to make us happy, isn't it? Just eat a chunk of fat and drink some sweet wine. <laughs> But what a better translation of that actually is eat rich food. Eat the things that make a normal meal a feast. Don't, don't be downhearted. Don't be discouraged. He then says at the end, I think it's chapter 10, uh, verse 10, I think he says, do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Not your ability to be able to do this stuff or not do this stuff. That's not your joy and that's not your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. In the moment when you realize your inability, do you know what you need to do? You need to rejoice. Rejoice because the Lord is your strength. Not because you failed in that moment or you succeeded. Oh, I'm a good Christian this week. Read seven chapters of the Bible, prayed for four hours, doing really well this week. It's not in your ability. The joy of the Lord is your strength. When you're feeling overwhelmed with the task in hand, when everything God is calling you to be seems like everything you are not, rejoice. Please, church, rejoice. How? Why? Because the joy of the Lord is your strength, not you. Church, as we journey towards spiritually rebuilding as well as practically rebuilding, the process involves allowing the light of God and his word to shine in our life and to shine on our life. And the more we do that, guess what? The more you're going to realize there's parts of your life that don't measure up. There's parts of your life that seem to be contradictory to what you're reading in the word of God. 
do not be discouraged. Do, this may be some of your experiences in this room. When you became a Christian, it's like, everyone told me my life was going to be fantastic. I'll give my life to Jesus. And from that moment, it just got worse and worse. It's been like an uphill struggle. I got this thing sorted in my life. And it's like, just as I've got this thing sorted in my life, it's like God throws another thing that I've got to deal with in my life. Absolutely. Rejoice in those moments. The closer you get to Jesus, the closer you will become to realizing that you do not stack up. You do not measure up. Don't let it discourage you. Don't let it be the thing that knocks you off course. Look at Paul. Paul, who wrote the majority of the New Testament. Backwards progression in Paul's life. If you read his writings chronologically, some of his early writings, he talks about the being, being the least of the apostles. And then if you move on, he talks about then being the least of God's people. Then later on in his writings, he calls himself the worst of sinners. And one of his latter letters, he calls himself the chief of all sinners. He's going further into God, deeper into the things of God, deeper into the word of God, getting to know fresh revelation of who God is in every step of the way. It's, and I just don't measure up even more now. I, don't, I just like last week, I, I thought I got it sorted and I thought I was a decent Christian. But now I'm just like, I just... It's just all gone to part and it makes no sense. Backwards progression is Christian maturity. Backwards progression is Christian maturity. Instead of letting the realization that you do not stack up lead you to a place of despair like it did the people of Nehemiah. Instead of letting it make you feel like Jesus is no longer with you and that the Spirit of God has departed you, let it encourage you. The deeper you are into the things of God, the more you will see those bits that he needs to work on. And I'm honestly landing the plane right here. This is where we're taxiing the runway and we're going to be disembarking. You'll get your luggage sometime soon and you'll be leaving the airport. I don't know why I'm doing an airport analogy. It's just I used to fly quite a lot. I'm, I'm reading this and I'm thinking that's all well and great. The joy of the Lord is our strength. But how do we practically live that out each day? And for some reason, I looked up, the, does anybody know the name, of the, the meaning of the name Nehemiah? The guy, Nehemiah, who wrote this book, his name means comforted by God. Comforted by God. And I've been in church long enough, and I've heard enough sermons that that suddenly reminded me of, I can't say chapter and verse, I knew what it was, but I knew somewhere else in scripture, Jesus talks about him leaving one that will comfort us, that the comforter will come. The comforter will be sent from God to journey alongside us. And I'm reading through my Bible and I find it in John 14 where Jesus is telling his disciples that he's going to go. He's going to go and he's going to ask them to be his representatives. And he's saying, as I go, I'm gonna, the, the comforter will come. And it says in um, John 14, 26, but the comforter, which is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things. And I'm just reminded of the Holy Spirit and his role. Most modern translations, that was the King James. I don't know why I remembered the comfort a bit in King James, but most modern translations use the word helper or advocate. But it means the one who runs to you and picks you up. Just when you're overwhelmed with a sense of the task that God's calling you to be. Just when you're feeling like, I don't stack up. I can't go out there and physically, practically rebuild and spiritually rebuild. I'm not good enough Christian to do that. Then the comforter has been sent to come to your side, to run to your side and pick you up. Church, we've not been designed to do this thing alone. When you become a Christian, the spirit of Jesus comes and lives within you, shaping your life to become more like him 
but it doesn't stop there. It didn't stop for the disciples there. There's a moment in the book of Acts, Acts 1.8, when Jesus says, I'm now calling you to go and be my representatives, be my witnesses, be everything that I've been. Heal the sick, cast out the demons and, and bring wholeness and spiritual renewal and rebuilding to this place called humanity. And now I'm going to give you the power to do that. The power will come upon you to do all that I'm calling you to do. I'm going to ask church, can we just stand? Because I've noticed when we do a response time and we say, if you need to respond, stand, then people don't stand. But if we all stand to begin with, then that helps. I'm going to share some stuff now and we're going to ask God just to move and if this doesn't apply to you, then you can sit right back down when I finish speaking. Maybe you're not able to stand in this moment, then just maybe put your hands out in front of you. The Holy Spirit will give you the power to be everything I'm calling you to be. To be his witnesses. To spiritually rebuild this nation, this town, the ends of the earth to practically rebuild this town, this nation, the ends of the earth. So maybe right now you're feeling a little bit overwhelmed with the task and it's just like I, I really struggle just to get up when my alarm clock goes off and to be everything that my family need me to be, to be everything that my job needs me to be. Well, stop battling against those things. You're in those things because God wants you in those things. And he's calling you to be his witnesses in those places, in the schools and the colleges. And he's calling you to be a people that stand out as being different, as being distinct. He's calling you to get back into his book, to read it and get to know what he thinks about you. And to out of the overflow of that revelation to be a people who worship. But we're not called to do it on our own. He will give you power to be his witnesses. All you have to do is ask. So right now, I'm just going to ask, close your eyes. And we're going to invite the Holy Spirit just to come and release his power in each one of us. To be his witnesses. To do all that he's calling us to do. To spiritually rebuild the lives of our families, the lives of our friends, the lives of our schools and our colleges of this town. Holy Spirit, we invite you right now to fall in this place. Your presence be amongst us. Holy Spirit, the Comforter, the one who runs to your side and picks you up. It's just an invitation away. For some of you, you may have given your life to Jesus many, many years ago. But it's like you're plateaued. It's like I just, there's something not quite right. There's something not quite there. In this moment, ask the Holy Spirit to come and consume your life. For some, it may initiate a, uh, an immediate response right now. You may need to start praying. You might, God might give you the gift of a heavenly language that we call tongues, and you just need to pray out to him in tongues. Just let that flow right now. For others, it may not be an immediate response right now. For those in the, the disciples that received the power of the Holy Spirit, theirs was a, a calling to go and be greater witnesses for him. 
you might find suddenly in a moment at work when you would have been frightened to say, I believe in Jesus. Suddenly there's a strength and a power that comes to be his witnesses, to spiritually rebuild your workplace. He'll give you a power to spiritually rebuild the nations. Release a power to give you a passion for worship, a passion for his book. So the power of the Holy Spirit, will you just fall right now? If this doesn't apply to you, I'm just going to ask you just to take a seat. If you, It's fine. We don't pressure anybody into anything in this place, but I'm just going to ask for you just to take a seat because I just want to come around and pray for each one of you. Just a few moments, just asking. And there's two things. We have to ask with faith. We have to say with faith. Power of the Holy Spirit, you fall right now. And we have to receive. You have to believe that God will give it. And you have to receive it with faith. You may not feel a thing. It's absolutely fine. It's not about your feelings. But you have to believe that God has poured out his spirit upon you and that as you leave this place, his power to be his witnesses, to spiritually rebuild the places and the spaces he's called you.